welcome to the second episode of Conversations for 2024. This year's podcast will take us back to basics, a deep dive into each of our strategies through conversation with the investment specialist responsible for each. For this second episode, we warmly welcome Kevin Hebner, Global Investment Strategist with TD Epic. Together, he and CEO Damien McIntyre will discuss the global macro environment and the investment themes most likely to impact investors in 2024 and beyond. Before I hand over, I need to read this important notice. The information contained in this podcast is general and does not consider your objectives, financial situation or needs. The information and views contained in this update reflect, as of the date of recording, the current opinions of the participants and are subject to change without notice. Before making an investment decision in relation to a fund, investors should consider the appropriateness of this information, having regard to their own objectives, financial situation and needs, and read and consider both the product disclosure statement and the additional information. GSFM Responsible Entity Services has produced a target market determination in relation to all of the GSFM funds. The TMD sets out the class of persons who comprise the target market for the various funds, and this can be downloaded from our website. This podcast was recorded on Wednesday, the 21st of February, 2024. Damon, Kevin, over to you. Thank you very much, Tracy, for that warm introduction. Kevin, welcome to Australia and welcome to our podcast. Thanks very much, Damien. By way of background, our Australian clients are very familiar with Bill Priest, Kira Van Valen and John Tobin, but they're yet to meet you, Kevin. So I wonder if you'd be kind enough just to very quickly give us a, a quick snapshot of your background and your role at Epoch. Okay, thanks, Damien. I've been at um, Epoch for eight years now. I did previously work work with Bill Priest at Credit Suisse. This was a couple decades ago. And actually both John Tobin and Kira were at Credit Suisse at the same time as well. I started off my career at the Bank of Japan in the mid-90s and spent about 13 years working in Japan after the BOJ as with UBS as Japan Equity Strategist and then Credit Suisse. Afterwards, I spent time on the trading floor at JP Morgan in New York, so the main fixed income and FX trading floor, which it's, it's very good to spend some time on trading floors and, and see how the fast-paced, short-term world works. I think it's especially good to do that when you're in your 20s, not when you're in your 50s. So I moved to Epic about eight years ago, and I'm very happy to be working with Bill Fries, John Tobin, Kira, and quite a few friends that I've known for a long time. It's a very good group focused on free cash flow, shoulder yield, and I think all the right things. Similarly, uh, my first job out of university was actually working on the, the floor of the Melbourne Stock Exchange. So yes, I can certainly agree with you wholeheartedly that those jobs are great in terms of the, the action, but equally very well suited to someone young rather than someone of my vintage. <laughs> so thanks for that and welcome. What I might do is just fire a, a heap of questions at you and pick your brains and share your insights with our audience. So if I could just start with interest rates and inflation, both rates and inflation have dominated the markets for the best part of two years years now, or interest rates have dominated the markets for a lot longer period for being much lower than they are today. But obviously, when inflation raised its head in Q1 of of 22, that sent the interest rate markets north very, very quickly. So in your view, so where are we now? And how do you think this will play out over 2024 from an inflation and rates point of view? You know, starting off with rates and and say real yields, we've seen this ratcheting down the real 10-year yield, for example, 
in the US averaged 5% in the 80s. That moved down to 4% in the 90s, 2.5% in the 2000s, just above zero in the 2010s. And that was supposed to be the new normal. In fact, it was the new abnormal. And what we're seeing more this decade, for a number of reasons, I think, is real yield starting to normalize. And we think the average for this decade will be a number closer to 1.5 to 2%. In terms of economic theory, the real yield is supposed to be similar to potential real GDP growth, which is probably a number like 1.8%. That hasn't been true for a long time, as we've had this downward trend since the 80s after a pretty brutal 1970s. So real yields we see much higher than last decade. So a number somewhere in the 1.5 to 2 category. In terms of inflation in the United States, we focus on core personal consumption expenditure prices, so core PCE inflation. And if you look at the three-month change or six-month change in that number annualized, it's already around 2%. And there's a number of funky things going on, particularly with shelter in inflation measures that might lift it a little bit short term. So we see inflation 2 to 2.5% two for the next quarter or two, but we are close to target. And I think for a number of reasons, inflation is going to be secularly higher than it had been last decade and the decade before. But I think to a large extent, inflation has normalized. It's still a bit too early for the Fed to take a victory lap, but probably looking at our first cut in mid-June, three cuts this year. And then I think trying to look beyond a year, because if you think of the track record of macro forecasters over the last four years, every year we've had strong views. Every year people have been totally wrong. So I think one has to be quite humble in how you view the outlook and also willing to change as the data comes in differently. And we've got a lot of events this year. So I'm sure the macro perspective is it's going to change pretty dramatically from how we envision it January, February this year to what we're seeing at by end of year. Interesting. Now, tell me, the US market has been really quite resilient. I know if we're looking at the equity market, particularly the strength in the market has been around this new phenomenon of the, the sensational seven or the fabulous seven or whatever the description is. Given the US equity market strength over the last year or so, how do you account for that? How would you explain it? So it is had very much been driven by the, the Magnificent Seven, so seven supposed AI plays. And so, for example, if you look at consensus expectations for earnings growth this year, for the entire S&P, it's 12%. But for 493 companies, it's 5%, roughly in line with nominal GDP growth. For the Meg Seven, it's 55%. So we've got this enormous dichotomy, and that's really being driven by the build-out of the infrastructure for AI, all the picks and shovels. So the compute, the clouds, semiconductors, and that's all, all different levels of the stack. And so that's going to drive earnings certainly through 2024 into 2025. But I think beyond them, we get we get a, a real problem and we have to say, well, how is AI actually adding values for consumers, households, and business people? And that's not at all clear. And usually when we have new technologies like this, it, it is a decade plus long process. So it looks like this trend might continue through 20. But beyond that, I think people are going to be a bit disappointed by the length of time it takes, that it always takes for new disruptive technologies, in this case AI, to actually add economic value to businesses and households. 
Well, it's interesting. I suppose when we look back through history and we look back through time, there has been quantum shifts in commerce or technology, which really has been the catalyst for these big market moves. So it's probably fair to assume that the markets are anticipating significant and lasting change as a result of AI. And I suppose that's why these AI leaders have been so dominant. Yes. And I guess the issue is, well, how much is priced in and is that reasonable? So for example, with NVIDIA, we think it's priced in 20% earnings growth for the next 18 years. Now, companies have done that before, but there's never been a case that a huge company has done that before. So previously, much earlier, Apple's done that, Microsoft's done that, lots of companies have done it, but never a huge company. So we think it's possible, but it's quite improbable. And so to more broadly, looking at the Meg 7, you know, there's three reasons to think we might be in some type of bubble, similar to a bubble like we had in the late 90s. One would be the enormous concentration in terms of stock market cap for a small number of stocks. The second is valuations, which is extreme. And then thirdly, I think the euphoria of so much public comment, the things that pundits are saying, and, and all three of these sound very much like the 1990s. And then the question is, is today 1999 or is it 1997? And, and clearly the implications for investors are pretty important. Which one you think it is? Yeah, we're in an amazing moment in time, particularly as it applies to NVIDIA. I was looking at Bloomberg last night and there was a an article and a headline which was the world hangs on NVIDIA's results. And I thought, my God, is this what we've become? That one name is going to be either a, a lightning rod for volatility or a drawdown, or, or secondly, if the numbers are better than expected, do we breathe a sigh of relief and we can life can go back to normal? It's it's quite extraordinary, really, this moment in time, and in particular, the Magnificent Seven. So NVIDIA will report today. Today's Wednesday. And so it is important because NVIDIA very much is the center of the build out. We've seen the compute that's dedicated to AI increase 10x every year for the last decade and it'll probably continue increasing 5x or 10x for quite a while. And given the, the lock hold that NVIDIA has in this ecosystem, it should be good for NVIDIA. And so the market will be looking at this number for what it means for NVIDIA at a very elevated multiple, but also what it means broadly for the build out of AI infrastructure and all the names attached to that. And so if we see a slowdown in NVIDIA's numbers, that means the entire build out is slowing down. And then I, I think we could see you know, a pretty marked sell off. But my feeling is the, the infrastructure still has quite a way to build up. My guess is throughout this year, it remains pretty strong, but not a whole lot beyond this year. At some point, we really do need to see the killer apps and how AI isn't just benefiting picks and shovels and the infrastructure of digital tech, but actually we need to see real services that are benefiting goods and businesses and households. And we really, yeah, we've seen a lot of cool stuff, but not stuff that really is going to move the needle that way. In that way, it feels a bit like 99. Like in 99, the businesses that were doing well, were all really good businesses. It was just way too early. And patience is not something that the stock market is always terrific at. Yeah, we still haven't learned that from history, have we? You're right. Everyone tried to imagine the internet and, and how it would change our lives in the late 90s, but it didn't really have a significant impact for many, many years later. And the NASDAQ, as it was back then, it got there way in advance of the actual change. It led to some disappointments and tears during the NASDAQ's correction in, in the early part of the, the OO. So you're right. It's, it's fascinating and it's it really will be interesting to see how this all plays out.
Yeah. The one major difference between now and the 90s is the tech leaders now are producing a lot of free cash flow, pretty terrific operating margins, and the return on invested capital relative to the cost of capital, it's very nice. And that's different than the late 90s when most companies were burning through cash. So that that's an important difference, even if there's the three similarities that we, we mentioned before. But still, there's a question we're embedding so much earnings growth. And it's normal when you have a new technology that you overestimate the short-term impact, you underestimate the long-term impact, but we're in the short-term right now. And so we do think that there is going to be this point when you look over the chasm and the market does have to retrench for a while. Even if what's going on is real and it's important, I think what's been priced in is moving well ahead of what the technology is going to deliver. Just on AI, and I might get you to indulge us in a little bit of AI for dummies. I mean, I get how AI is omnipresent. And for example, if I were to search on Google for a, a new car, miraculously, every advertisement that is, seems to present itself on my screen for days afterwards, a new car ads from either manufacturers or car yards. So that's sort of one sort of sneaky way this all plays out. How else do you think it'll manifest itself? And what sort of benefits do you see for commerce and indeed the consumer? So far, say the experience from 23, you know, there's two places where AIs move the needle. One is for software engineers writing code. So Microsoft Copilot can make them 55% faster. So that's real and it's happening and that's pretty important. The second place has been writing marketing copy. And that fact, that's the number one use so far of generative AI. But there's many different places, for example, bringing AI into call centers to help those workers. That seems to result in a bump in productivity of 15% radiologists, a majority of radiologists now are using AI to enhance what they do. Taxi drivers are using AI to help them find where to go, where they're most likely to find the next rider. So, And there's a lot of potential applications and applications that are being rolled out in the medical sector, in the education sector. And we think this stuff is very exciting. It's going to make the world better. It's just that when you move from the world of bits to the world of atoms, and then you run into institutions and power centers, as you do in healthcare and education, just the rollout takes a lot longer than people think. Talking about tangible productivity benefits, I had a series of board meetings for my involvements here in Australia this week, and one of them was a 156-page board pack, and I was moaning about the, how much I had to read on the weekend. And my 17-year-old daughter suggested that I take a photo of each page, put it into the Microsoft, whatever that package is, and within, hey presto, within a few minutes, this Microsoft package will give me a summary of the key points from the 156-page board Pack. And I looked at her quizzically thinking, well, I, I sincerely hope that's not the way you intend to educate yourself or, or buck the system moving forward. And I want to stress for uh, all our listeners and clients benefit, I didn't cheat. I did read every 156 pages. But as you say, in terms of the speed and productivity gains these things can generate, it, it's scary, isn't it? I don't think it's scary. I think it's very promising. It augments our abilities. It's going to make us better if we're analysts or portfolio managers or strategists involved in the finance world or education or healthcare. Steve Jobs used to say, always say computers are bicycles for the mind. So this this is what we have with AI. It's it, Maybe it's a motorcycle for the mind. It's something for the mind. It definitely makes us better. In terms of your daughter's example, that's a terrific one and that's used a lot. So when people get like a complicated paper, 
you need to read through and say you don't have three hours, you take the PDF, you put it into an app and then say, can you give me a 200 word or 400 word summary? And it'll spit it out. And then you understand what the paper's about. And then you can decide, okay, is this worth spending three hours on or not? Similar, if, if you have to write something on a topic, you're not really sure how to structure or where to get started. So you say to it, I need to write a paper, for example, the pros and cons of investing in India. Can you give me 600 words or 800 words? And it'll give you that and it'll give you a structure. And some of it will be wrong. Some of them will be pretty average, but it saves you quite a bit of time as a writer. And that's going to get better and better. So AI, artificial intelligence, it's really about augmenting intelligence, augmenting your ability. And so people in creative fields and white collar fields, it's more than a bicycle for the mind. I'm not quite sure what the white metaphor is, but we should, in fact, we definitely should not be scared of it. We need to embrace it in the same way that we needed to embrace PCs and the internet and how they would help us do our job even better. Yes, yes, indeed. Now, if I could just switch back to or change gears and just talk about the world and in the context of 2024, it really is a big year for elections. We've just seen Taiwan, put it this way, China got the uh, the wrong answer in Taiwan. It was a government that's uh, friendly to maintaining Taiwan's uh, independence. Um, but we've also got elections in many other jurisdictions and most notably, perhaps, the United States. So how do you think this, and in particular, the US because that's your home but you know having worked in Japan you've got a, a better understanding of the region than most Americans what do you think will happen to markets and through the year with this election cycle Particularly, I, you know, I don't know a lot about the elections we just had in Indonesia. I, I noticed something. Um, I am Canadian. Forgive well. me. <laughs> so, but I will be voting November. This will be the first time I voted in a presidential election. Policy implications. The betting sites right now are, are saying there's a big gap between Trump and Biden. So there's a well over 50% chance that Trump will win. And that gap is getting bigger. You know, there's still eight and a half months to go. So a so lot can change and a lot always change between now and then. But one thing that's different between now and 2016, Trump is much better organized. He already has his team together and he's putting up very detailed explanations of his policies on his website, which is donaldjtrump.com. And when you go through these, a number stand out. For example, one, tariffs. You know, he loves tariffs. He doesn't realize their taxes. He thinks that the country exporting the U.S. pays them. That's not true. U.S. consumers pay them. But this is the way he thinks about it. So 10% tariff on all imports, that's an average three times higher than today's level. So that's a starting point. Tax cuts. So the 2017 tax cuts he put in place, going to make those permanent. That's fiscal stimulus. Goodbye fiscal conservatism. Energy, we have this pivot from green to brown energy. The US is already the number one oil producer, but this gets turbocharged. Industrial policy, we've seen lots of industrial policy under Biden. We see more under Trump regarding semiconductors, energy, autos, manufacturing, regulations. Trump hates the swamp. He hates the bureaucracy. So there'll be lots of deregulation going through. Chairman of the Fed, Powell, Trump's been very clear that he would not reappoint them. He wants someone in place who's going to be dovish and is going to be more pliant to Trump's wills. In terms of geopolitics, Trump's how hates anything that smells of multilateralism. He doesn't think he needs to negotiate with any country regarding trade, climate, Taiwan, Iran, Ukraine, NATO, any of those things. So it's very much a unilateral approach. And then regarding China, he's clear he wants 
wants to revoke China's most favored nation status. That means they get the best tariff treatment out there. It'd certainly be hawkish on China, but he's also made it very clear he doesn't think the U.S. should defend Taiwan because Taiwan, he thinks, stole America's semiconductor industry. So in the short term, you've got tax cuts, deregulation, and some other things. So they create a short-term boost to equity markets, similar to what we had in 2017. But you think sort of more medium term, he's adding fuel to the fire. We already have an economy that's working at capacity. All this pro-growth stuff, it's all inflationary. And it means lower medium-term growth, higher inflation, higher interest rates. But I think at least now, it seems the market's mainly focused on the short-term likely impetus to equity markets. Now, of course, the United States economy has been remarkably resilient in recent years, and it's almost safe to say that a soft landing is the most likely outcome through 2024. You know, there's lots of drivers to the US economy. But one of the things that isn't talked about enough, I believe, is the extent and quantum of fiscal stimulus. What is it? 7% of GDP, isn't it? Or something of that magnitude. So if Biden is re-elected, presumably he will maintain that stimulus or close to, do you think it'll be a different world under Trump? And and what do you think that might do to the soft landing thesis? You're right. All standard uh, economic indicators said, say, a year ago or two years ago, that we we're heading to recession. So any well-trained economist would say 80% chance of recession, and you'd have lots of ammo to back that view up. The view is totally wrong. And you know, that's been the history for the last four years, right? If you apply your standard tools, they've been time and tested, these tools, they've been wrong consistently for four years. So we really do have to be careful about beating our chest with our, our forecast over the next year or two. But I, I agree with you. Fiscal stimulus mattered a lot. Trump is certainly promising a lot of fiscal stimulus. He will have to work with Congress to do that. But the evidence seems to be that he's pretty good at browbeating Congress into giving him what he wants in many areas. And I think tax cuts would be one of those. I think for Biden presidency, if he had, say, Republican House and sort of a borderline 50-50 Senate, I think it'd be much more difficult for him to have sort of normal fiscal stimulus. But the one place where there is bipartisan support is industrial policy. So there's been, you know, $280 billion for semiconductors, different other areas, which I think we could have industrial policy backed up by pretty big sums of money. Interesting. Well, Kevin, in the interest of time, we've hit our 30-minute window. So unfortunately, I have to conclude our conversation, which I've really enjoyed. So thank you very much, A, for coming to Australia this week. I sincerely hope this week is a success for you and, and for Epic. And it'll be interesting to see how 2024 plays out. Yes. Yeah, thank you very much for your time today, Damien. It's, it's been fun. Thank you very much. 